Hello and welcome to Edelman Editions. In this episode, we're joined by Sophia Thacker, a spoken poet and writer on everything from mental health and diversity to politics and well-being, and Ishtar Schneider, an associate director from Edelman's healthcare team. As part of our Powered by Gwen series, Edelman's Global Women's Equality Network, Sophia talks about where she gets her creativity and inspiration, how she's built her success and overcome adversity, and her experience being a female in 2021. Ever since Sophia climbed on stage at the tender age of 16 and captivated a room full of adults, she's pushed the traditional boundaries of poetry and literature to inspire audiences across the country. Over to you, Ishtar. Thanks so much for joining us, Sophia. We're really pleased to have you today. No, thank you so much for having me. Um, I won't um, kind of uh, spend too much time and just dive straight into what we're all here to find out about. I know you started um, poetry quite young, um, kind of found it as a medium quite quite early. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, sure. Um, I sometimes make up answers to this <laughs> because I can't quite remember. But what I do know is that Poetry spoke to who I was as a shy 14, 15-year-old in school. I was never the loudest, never the most confident, um, but poetry was this very gentle but powerful way of explaining feelings. I remember watching this thing called Def Jam Poetry where I would see my favourite musicians at the time from Alicia Keys to Lauren Hill to Kanye West they would come on stage and they would do poetry. They would perform these spoken word pieces that would completely blow my mind. And I thought, wow, I love the intimacy of poetry. I love the fact that there's no, there was no music, there was no acting, there was no dancing, there was no theatrics. It was just conversation that penetrated like art. And that really spoke to me and, and who I was as a kid. Um, I tried it for the first time and... I felt like who I always wanted to feel like when I was on stage. I love that. And I think, you know, it it definitely speaks to, you know, people who um, kind of see poetry in a certain way. Um, You know, we've talked about this previously, but that, you know, you learn poetry as maybe Shakespeare or something really lofty in school. Um, And so, you know, a spoken word is is something completely different. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about how you see poetry and spoken word as as being different than this kind of other kind of storytelling forms like dancing or writing music or even traditional poetry? So I think um, I think there's a plethora of reasons to celebrate and encourage young women to step up and speak and, and claim their platform. But I think for me, what really encourages and inspires me is the fact that the generations before me didn't get a chance to do that. They didn't get an opportunity or a window to experience their mouth on the other side of silence. And with that luxury, I wholeheartedly believe that we can and we should. Um, We have this chance to cement our voices into change. We have a chance that we have the chance that our grandparents didn't have. Um, And I think with that, it can change the world. Because when you think of what a woman is, a woman is made of her power, her ability, her wisdom, and so much more. And with all of those things, all of these raging waters inside, we still had the strength to create a dam to stop us spilling over into a world that wasn't ready for all of that, or perhaps didn't invite that level of um, femininity or that degree of femininity. 
Um, so even with that strength, now that that dam has broken, now we are allowed that vibrancy, that beautiful chaos that should come from a woman suddenly being allowed to be all of herself, it stands to transform the world because the world has never seen it before. The world can only be transformed by it. Um, the bravery, I think, that has held us up and held the woman before us up, it still lives in us. Um, I was researching for this book and this idea really stuck out to me that a baby girl, a child, is born with all of the eggs in her lineage inside her. So a one-year-old or a two-year-old is born, pardon me, is born with her great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren inside her. And to me, I just thought, wow, knowing that generational trauma transforms great-great-great-grandchildren's reaction to depression and psychosis, how much more then does the power of a woman stand to transform generations to come now that you are able to act in it, now that you're able to spark that thing. If I decide today to tap into such ancestral strength, to stand on the hands of such mountains, to push the sky even higher, to drink from the source, to lock their oasis in my womb and sieve that desert for alchemy, just imagine the intelligence. Imagine the remedy of wrapping all women up in their roots. Imagine the strength in that foundation, that new foundation that has been waiting to break ground for generations. Um, that power to me is, it will be a disservice to history to not step into it because we are our grandparents, but this time with mouths that move. I am, I am my auntie, but with the freedom to pick, to choose. Um, I am all of my elders, but with a canvas now to imprint on, I think they have always vibrated in our bones, waiting to be lived in, waiting to be given lips, to be given limbs, waiting for a time like now to comprehend the richness that lives inside us. As women, we come from such power and now we have this window to play with it and I strongly believe we should take advantage. I believe that we should own it, parade it. I believe that they did not surrender their sermons for us to pick silence. I think that they stayed in our bloodline waiting for a time like now. And I think we are here, we are them, and so we must. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's not just doing it for the generations you know, before that came before us that didn't necessarily have the the platform or the opportunity to speak out, but also, as you say, you know, for the ones to come, um, you know, when we were talking about International Women's Day this year, you know, there's nearly a hundred year gap um, before we close, you know, the gender pay gap, which is, you know, so if we don't make strong and bold moves now, then, you know, that's going to widen even further. And that's, you know, further generations that won't be able to, to be on the same footing as, as you know, their equals. And so, um, you know, I, I, I strongly believe, as you've said, we really need to do this today, now. Yeah, yeah, completely. I agree. I agree. And I really love this um, one line that you wrote for MTV's um, International Women's Day campaign a few years ago that is, you know, unpicks what you were saying about being multidimensional as a woman. But it says to be a woman is to be both warrior and warrior. Um, and so do you want to say a little bit more about that piece in particular and, and how that plays into, you know, your own identity and experiences as a woman? Yeah, um, I think... As a woman, we wear many hats, right? We take on the role of 
we take on so many full-time roles. And I think in this poem in particular, I wanted to explore how multifaceted a woman is. Um, when I think back to my grandparents, both of my grandmothers on both sides, and what they had to overcome, what they had to do, what it took to raise families in Africa, then bring them over to London, where London was racist and there weren't many good jobs for people that came from Africa, um, to then find a way to feed all of these mouths to support them until they are adults. Um, to me, that is astounding. Like, that is absolutely amazing. I know what I'm like when I go on tour and I'm in another country and let's say I haven't eaten. I know how I panic <laughs> or I haven't got my bearings on where I need to go. I know I panic and I know what rest keeps me at ease is the fact that I still have money. I still have British citizenship. There's embassies everywhere. They came into this country without any of those safeguards and they still made it work. So when I think about what it takes to then be that kind of woman and how the capacity we have inside us that, thank God, we don't need to use all of our capacity, right? But the fact that we have it in us um, is astounding. So I think I wanted to lean into that. I wanted to think about the fact that as women, we exist in so many full-time jobs. Being a CEO, for example, of a company is a full-time job. And it becomes even more full-time when you are being a CEO against the grain of inequality, against the grain of being the only woman in the boardroom, against the grain of being spoken over in, the, in any meeting, against the grain of um, not knowing whether to schedule this networking me meeting or not. Because if a man schedules it with a man, it looks like a networking dinner. If a woman wants to schedule it with a man, it becomes a date. Um, being a, a female employee and always having to question whether you are in the position you're in because the person has a soft spot towards you or whether it's your ability and then in the case that it is a soft spot knowing how that will then infringe on your job I know I've been in so many situations where someone has tried to bring me on to a project a very very big project um, and I'm led to believe it's because of what I do and the standard of my work and the caliber of what I do and in that working space they might try to ask to go on a date or advance in some way and then I have to nip that in the bud and then the opportunity's gone um, so I think having to be a woman and navigate that space we are working two jobs at the exact same time because we are working and we are also working against the grain being a mother is a full-time job you are a full-time cleaner, carer, supporter, therapist, physiotherapist, doctor, daughter. You're so many things all at once. So I think um, what I wanted to do is to raise awareness of the, dis of the disadvantage we're at, but also how we pull through that disadvantage and what that goes to show about what we are made of. Yeah, I think this this came up in one of our previous speaker sessions around male allyship, which kind of came to light, obviously, off the back of um, everything that was happening with um, Sarah Everard and Blessin um, Olesegun. Um, and, you know, really around, you know, uh, what struck me, I guess, is is that a lot of, um, you know, people or our male colleagues just don't think about things like that, right? Um, you know, it's not that they don't care. It's just that it's not something that they've ever had to worry about. And so it is, you know, really important to have the conversations because, you know, it's it's not that they mean to to push it aside or, or 
even recognize the disadvantage, but they just, it just doesn't even cross their kind of sphere of consciousness most of the time. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it is a really interesting um, piece that, you know, there's, there's so many things as a woman that you have to be conscious of at all times. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. And we live in constant awareness of our gender. Definitely. Um, and you write a lot about gender, but also about identity overall and differences and relationships and, um, you know, these really strong emotions like fear and loss and joy um, in your book, Somebody Give This Heart a Pen, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. So what, what did you really want readers to take away from that collection and, and how did you channel your own identity and or those of, you know, others into that, that work? Um, I think the answer to that is twofold. I think um, I know what art can be when it makes someone feel seen. I have lived on the other side of lyrics that have made me feel as though I am not the only one going through what I'm going through. Um, I have lived on the other side of film scripts that have made me feel seen and recognised. And in that same breath, I have lived on the side of art that has opened me up to other people's existence and in learning about other people's existence what we create for ourselves is a, a method of empathy and we can further understand the people around us what they go through what their experience might be like and I think if we can as a generation just become more empathetic we stand to be such an incredible generation such an amazing generation um so that was my first reason for wanting to write. I wanted to make people feel seen. There's a poem in the collection. Um, it's either called Fighting with Strangers or Stagnant Divorce. And it's the story of a young kid who is in a classroom and the teacher asks something about love or marriage. And the kid goes kind of, it's like a mental monologue of the kid thinking about the fact that love to him or to her has always been arguments because they'd grown up in a house of arguments and fighting and disagreement. And even if it's not disagreement, um, just really irate ways of talking to the person you love. And that's that's how they met love. And I remember I performed it in a school and it was year sevens or eights, I think sevens and eights actually. And the conversations it started, pardon me, amongst these young people who typically you leave home at home and you come to school, but the conversations that started amongst these young people who had such a shared experience of their parents arguing and they spoke about how it made them feel and it's, they spoke about what it makes them think about marriage and love and relationships and the freedom that comes from realising this doesn't have to be a secret because we all go through it. The freedom and that liberation, I saw the magic of it and I saw what poetry stands to become when we all speak about our issues. Um, so I think that's the, one of the reasons I wanted to tell as many stories as possible inside this book. I wanted to liberate people from their secrets, from their silence, from their shyness, and from their isolation. And the second reason I really wanted to tell stories and normal stories, stories of love and loss and puberty and whatever else, was to balance the narrative of what it means to be a black woman, what it means to be a woman. Um, when this book came out, one of the description taglines that was being posted everywhere was Sophia Thacker talks about what it's like living as a mixed race woman in London as a black woman, whatever that means. 
And I remember reading it over and over again, thinking that's like not even what the book talks about. <laughs> that's hardly what the book talks about. I don't speak about what it's like to be black. I don't speak about what it's like to be a woman. And if I do, it's definitely the minority part of the book. Um, but the fact that it's, I think as authors and artists as a whole, we're very much pigeonholed into gender or into race and more so that than the product. Um, and so I think what I did want to do in that is normalise what it means to be black and in love, normalise what it means to be black and continue going to see your ex, normalise what it means to be black and seeing your hips grow, because I think in normalising these things, we stand to humanise what it means to be a woman, humanise what it means to be black. And hopefully in that humanising, people will then come to see us as not so different so also worthy of equality also worthy of, of of certain rights because we are all the same um so I think yeah the reason I wanted to write the book was twofold to introduce empathy and to introduce balance yeah I love that um and I love the the telling of the everyday stories and experiences I think that it, you know it really speaks to the accessibility point uh, of you know spoken word that you kind of touched on before um you know I, I guess you also go into schools quite a bit in terms of uh, running workshops and introducing them to poetry and spoken word as well um you know and, and how is it um, kind of getting young people to to kind of recognize these emotions and and channel them into something like spoken word poetry where you know they they might, might not be used to that doing that at all or even have done that ever before um, I, I love, um, I love watching children refine their love for poetry. I know that in school, sometimes quite a clinical approach to poetry is taken. Um, in that it's kind of treated like a science sometimes, like let's unpick this poem into metaphors and similes and punctuation. And I think sometimes it can take the soul out of poetry. It can take the real meaning out of poetry. Um, so what, yeah, when I go into schools, what I try to do, and one thing that I do do quite often actually is I get a song, a popular song, and I remove, I print out the lyrics and I get them to look at that as a poem. When they read, let's say, Adele, Rolling in the Deep, they know the song, they know the lyrics, they know how it makes them feel. They are very aware of the feelings in the poem, of feelings in the song. And if they, if they already know that, my job is half done because now it is just ticking the boxes as to having them then learn what a metaphor does to contribute to that feeling, what a simile does to contribute to that feeling. When she says, um, there's a fire burning, burning in my heart, is that the lyric? Something like that. Starting in my heart, something like that, yeah. Um, when she says that, as a teenage girl, I completely understand. <laughs> I completely get that. And I think if we can make poetry relevant again, if we can make it relevant to the everyday person, we stand to have a generation of kids that not only grow to like poetry, but also see the power in finding words for their emotions. Because we have a big mental health epidemic going on as well. We have a big problem with mental health. We have a problem with wellness. We have a problem with people not discussing what they're going through. We have, we have a problem of silence being suicidal. If we create a culture of kids who feel confident 
in poetry as a way to express their feelings as opposed to poetry as a way to express a metaphor or a simile or punctuation we stand to have kids that find strength in expression um, so when I go into schools I really try and encourage poetry that's relevant and poetry that they the feeling's already there and it's just a study of the feeling as opposed to a scientific analysis of the use of a comma yeah I think I've definitely had that um, English class where you unpick, you know, here's how you build in a, ha- a haiku. And then that is your <laughs> that is your baseline for how you think about poetry moving forward. Yeah, exactly that. Definitely. Well, I, I love how you're kind of turning that on its head. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like we're in the midst of kind of a, a pandemic, as you know, of, of mental health right now. And, you know, that's been exacerbated by the, you know, the, the COVID-19 issue, everyone being further away from friends and family and, and really dealing with, you know, social isolation and, and loneliness, um, you know, amongst kind of other health concerns and things like that as well. So, um, you know, and it really does feel like it's been a really heavy year, not just on that front, but, you know, um, with everything happening in the world. So, um, you know, how have you been able to channel, um, you know, how you've been dealing with that into into your work and and how do you things have or haven't moved on for women and people of color over the uh, the last decade? Um, Okay, so to answer the first question, how has mental health kind of been during lockdown? I think it has been quite difficult. And I do think one reason for that difficulty is the expectation we put on ourselves in a lockdown. I think especially as a writer and content creator, we see people making so much content, right? Content overload at the moment online. And there was so much pressure for me at the beginning to keep up. And I think what we didn't do, and I think also at the beginning of lockdown, we were all saying things like, okay, we're never going to have this time back again. Let's learn languages. Let's um, play instruments. Let's do all of these things. And the pressure that we put ourselves on to be able to do these things and then the um, the feeling of disappointment, I guess, when we don't do these things, that can drive us crazy. And it has in so many ways. It is, it is such an unnecessary pressure we put on ourselves. And one thing that I had to learn is that there are emotional and mental realities of a pandemic. If one day I wake up and I feel as if the whole world is on top of me and I'm so sick of it and tired of it and fed up with everything that is okay it's okay not to be okay we have been living in our bedrooms for like a year you know it's that it's very okay to not be okay we don't need to fight that feeling sometimes we just need to sit with it and understand it I agree I think that's you know there's so much pressure to to have completed things or to have progressed during the pandemic and I think you know sometimes we just need to give ourselves a little grace don't we yeah exactly and it's giving ourselves the same grace that we probably give other people you know, we give we give our friends the advice, chill out, take it easy, man. You don't need to do all of this. But what about ourselves? <laughs> so I think, yeah, it's definitely, as perfectly put, it's giving ourselves that grace to just accept that this is a very difficult situation. So it is going to feel difficult. Definitely. And I think that, you know, you touched on it earlier, but the, the impact of social media um, and living in this such a social and digitally connected age where right now oh, everything is online, um, you know, how do you use your social influence, um, you know, to drive change? And how do you feel like it's contributed to your impact, um, you know, and, and your art and how you share that with the world? I think as a as a writer, the role that I try to take on is introducing people to moral imagination to this idea that things can be better 
And I think that's what I've used social media for. Um, I remember I read something and it basically said, change takes lots of different types of people. It takes people that are going to educate kids that there's a new way to do things. It takes people that are going to go and lobby parliament. It takes CEOs. It takes colleagues and employees. It takes people that are going to go down and burn police stations. And it also takes humanitarians. And I believe that the artist role, for me anyway, definitely sits inside that inside that humanitarian bracket where I introduce this idea that actually we can get along. Actually, we don't need to live like this. Imagine a world where a woman is seen for her power and not her thighs. Or a world where a black person is seen for their strength and not their stereotype. Um, so I think for me, what I've tried to do online is introduce this moral imagination into people's lives for them to rethink and challenge the core of their thinking um, which I think is the role of art right to challenge the core of our thinking in some capacity and then transform the core of our thinking so I've definitely tried to use social media to to do that yeah I love that and I, and I think it is that challenge because I think you know at the moment it does very much feel like there is a wave happening of uh, you know a acceptance um, more than ever before, um, which I think is a really positive thing, right? Um, you know, it is becoming more and more okay to be your whole self and, you know, not just in one part of your life, but at work, you know, bringing all parts of you and not just having, you know, one kind of part of your persona um, or trying to to amalgamate and fit into to everyone else. I think everyone is, is celebrating people's differences rather than their similarities more often, um, which is nice to see. But as you say, I think it's bridging the the recognizing that our differences are a great thing um, and, and harnessing that into change as well, um, because I think that the conversations have started, but the action is still needed. Um, so, you know, how do you what, what do you feel like still needs to happen for us to kind of get there to, to true equity? What a question. It's that million dollar question, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> What what else do we need to do? Um, I think we have to continue. I think, um, especially now, we have every distraction available to not continue, to decide that we, like, we are happy with how we're living and we don't want to be in a state of protest. Um, it's very easy to do that, but I think we have to think about our kids and our grandkids and wonder whether we want them to be to exist in the world that we are still living in, knowing that everyone has the capacity to not catcall a woman, knowing that it is, it's not exactly against, it, no one's fighting nature when they decide to not catcall a woman on the street, um, knowing that that capacity is there, we should strive towards it. Um, it. We're not asking for impossible things, we're actually asking for very basic things. Um, in so many ways, morally, as a society, we have moved along. We have understood eating habits. We are understanding climate change. We need to also take heed in a big way to the fact that we are still in the infancy of gender equality. We are still in the infancy of race equality. Because when we look at the extremes, life and death, they are still happening as a byproduct of these inequalities, which means we are still in the infancy. When it, when the day comes where the only time we see gender inequality is when women's deodorant costs more than men's deodorant, then, okay, fine, maybe we're no longer in the infancy of it, but we are still seeing people being killed because of their gender, killed because of their race. We have got a lot of work to do, and I think, again, going back to giving ourselves grace, 
we feel very far along because we have been born into a body that rejects inequality. But if we look at, it wasn't that long ago women couldn't vote. It wasn't that long ago at all. It wasn't long ago where that, that black people couldn't vote at all. Um, black people were still being sold in cages to German families 60 years ago. You know, like we're not we're not that far away from the peak of it. But when we look at us now in comparison to that, we have moved a long way. We have moved a very long way. And that has been because we have been inspired to do so. That has been because we have understood that these things are accessible. These things are doable. The things that we are striving for are not impossibilities. It is far easier to solve gender equality than it is climate change. So let's do it. You know, um, so I think that that's my message regarding it is that they are slow steps. They are small steps, but they are basic steps. They are very basic. It is just a matter of telling the right people, getting that into the right room and convincing people to share their privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, that you know, sometimes it can feel really overwhelming for people, um, you know, even people who are very outspoken or active on these these issues is just, um, you know, it can feel like the end goal is so far away. So I think that's a really nice message, you know, that, that you know, it is worthwhile and that, and that, you know, regardless of how you're helping drive that change, like that is important and, and worth doing, um, you know, and, and it's not just for us, but obviously for our kids, kids and their kids down the line. Yeah, 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 exactly that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you continue to find your inspiration and um, a bit about your creative process? You know, are, do you have to be in a completely dark room or, you know, kind of where where do you get your inspiration from? Um, I would love to be in a completely dark room <laughs> and write, but I think um, I have to unfortunately expose myself to the world in order to be inspired. <laughs> But no, I think um, I think uh, the world lends itself to my creativity in a very big way. Um, there is so much to talk about, and the world presents itself. When we let the world present itself, I remember I did this podcast called The Sound of Silence, and it's basically this quite eccentric guy who records architects and dancers and installation people and poets um, for two minutes in silence. So he introduces the podcast and says, I'm here with Sophia Thacker and we are going to start our silence. And for two minutes, we're in silence. And we did, we recorded this outside um, St. Barnabas Members Club in central London. And what, at first it was very awkward because I didn't really know the man that very well. Um, so the first like 30 seconds were kind of like, wow, longest 30 seconds of my life. But after that, the world genuinely did present itself Um the wind, I could pay more attention to it. The leaves, I could pay more attention to it. The trees around me, I could pay more attention to it. The makeup of his face, I could pay more attention to it. And the reason for that is because when we stop and allow the world to happen and step into this place of listening and curiosity, it presents itself to us. So I think for me in writing, I definitely try to stop. I separate myself from my bias. I separate myself from my opinions or the need to have an opinion and just allow myself to be curious, allow myself to wonder, allow myself to live inside a question and let the world answer it. Um, so that that is kind of my writing advice to everyone. It's let things present themselves to you. Um, when you watch a film, let it happen to you. When you read a book, let it happen to you. 
Um, and I know that sounds quite ambiguous, but I think sometimes it's as simple as not feeling as though you need to generate an opinion. Sometimes it's as simple as letting go of your bias and just taking in someone else's opinion. Sometimes it is just sitting down and listening as opposed to feeling a need to talk. Um, and then from there, obviously, ironically, I talk. Um, <laughs> so I think, yeah, that's that's kind of my my writing process. Yeah, and I love the way that you describe that as letting it happen to you rather than the other way around. And I think, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we don't really think about it in that way. Um, and we're kind of just like doing life um, instead of taking the time to, to kind of, you know, observe and ingest and, and kind of, observe, you know, kind of take it all in, I guess. Um, I have a couple of final questions for you. And then I'm hoping that you can leave us with a, a short reading. If that's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, for sure. Fantastic. So I just, you know, you've performed at places like Glastonbury, which you know, I know a lot of people in our agency definitely love. And um, you've done a couple of TED Talks as well. Um, and, you know, countless high profile events for BBC, Sky, Google, BET, etc. Um, do you still get nervous? Um, and if so, how do you kind of prepare and overcome those nerves? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I think that so there's this um, idea that I really like that when a leaf falls from a tree, it doesn't say that it's been defeated. It just says and understands that it is part of the season. It's part of the process. And I think nerves and fear are that leaf. Um, they're a very natural part of the process and they are not reason to accept defeat. They're not reason to stop. Um, so I think with me, when I do get nervous, I have this understanding that yeah, I'm nervous and I'm going to be nervous because that's just what it is. I'm not going to try and fight away the nerves unless they are literally immobilizing. I'm going to accept them as part of the process and move on from them. Because, um, yeah, I, I don't get, obviously, I don't get as nervous as I used to. I think my first show back after lockdown, I'm sure I'll be absolutely bricking it. But um, <laughs> I, I think what I do try to tell myself and tell my body is calm down. Like you've done this a million times before the worst thing that can happen is not exactly the worst thing in the world. You can fumble your words. Um, someone can say something about you. People are going to say things about you anyway. You might fumble your words anyway, um, but you still have to do it. You need to go on with it. So I think I definitely take quite a passive approach to nerves in that they are there, they exist, they cannot be my defeat. Yeah, yeah. And really positive self-talk, it sounds like, which is great. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been so, so enlightening, and, and we really appreciated having you here today. So would you mind just leaving us with something from Somebody Give This Heart a Pen? Yes, absolutely. So this is called Speak. Do not apologize for what your mother and I have spent years wishing we could do. Freedom is a gift that has been given to you, so come from behind the shadow of your tongue, to stand inside your mouth, to pull your voice from your toes up and speak. Thank you. That was beautiful. And thank you again for joining us. This has been really great. And I know everyone has really enjoyed listening to you. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.